0: President of the Ventura uh, chapter of the Hells Angels. He's a consultant with defense attorneys. He's an author. He's got a variety of occupations. He's currently in a one man show. He does a lot of public speaking. His name is George Christie. George, thank you for joining me on the Monday Morning Critic today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, George, I got to say, you know, I was watching your special on the History Channel, but before I get to that, there's a bunch of things I want to ask you. So, you know, I hear you talk a lot about your parents and they were Greek immigrants, I believe. First your first generation, right? Right. So so I mean, are you are you bilingual? Can you can you speak can you no, speak Greek? Not
1: anymore. you know. When my grandmother was alive, she didn't speak very good English and she used to speak to me in Greek and I would answer her in English. And that's where I got most of my uh Greek language skills, which is very limited from, because my mother wanted us to be American. She went to school, and she could barely speak uh, uh, English, and she got ridiculed, Mm. and she didn't want me experiencing that uh, type of humiliation.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's scary, George, how many times people, whether it's Greek or Italian or whatever, they had to change their names early on because they were getting, like you said, ridiculed or picked on or harassed. Um, George, have you been? Have you been to Greece? Have you visited? No, you know I haven't,
1: and uh, I plan to at some point in time. Hopefully, I won't run out of time. No, I, hey. uh, you know. We don't have any control over that. When your when your numbers punch, your numbers punch. You know, I was I was going to go meet with Doc Cabasus one time. who was the leader of the Mongols at the time, and I said, "Hey, just I'll come. I'll bring a second. You come. You bring a second. And yet, what you have to understand is Doc Cabasus traveled with a huge entourage. He wouldn't go anywhere, uh, you know, on a limited basis with personnel. And, you know, I said, look, man, I don't, I met with the outlaws, I met with the banditos. I said, I don't bring an entourage. I said, just, let's just, you and I meet somewhere. And I suggested an airport uh, through the uh, security. This is before you had to have a ticket. Uh, and I used to use airports. Uh, I would go to the coffee shops and airports because you had to get through the security, you know, you couldn't have a weapon of any sort, and you know, I suggested that to him, and he he, he just wouldn't do it. And I, you know, I I told him finally in exasperation, I go, look, Doc, when your number's punched, it's punched.
0: <laughs> well said, and George. Before we get going, explain the concept. And this is probably a stupid question. Explain the concept of one percent to me
1: well you know it's, it's really not a stupid question it it wound up becoming uh, a badge of honor for the uh, uh, early outlaw clubs here in southern California you know as the veterans returned from the World War II from the European and Pacific Cedars they came home probably felt isolated uh, not quite sure how to uh, acclimate to the new uh, uh, lives they were living you know Uh, outside of the uh, you know serious combat situations price suffering from undiagnosed PTSD and they started forming these little bike clubs and Hollister in 1947 I think was the year the San Francisco Chronicle sent a reporter to Hollister to watch the uh, this American Motorcycle Association uh, run so to speak event and He focused on these outlaw clubs, like the Booze Fighters, the 13 Rebels. I think the the and Goose were there. The Poobobs were there. The the Poobobs were the pissed off bastards of Bloomingdale that broke. The club actually split, and they became the Hells Angels, one of the factions. Hmm. And... This reporter started taking pictures and focusing on, I guess, what you'd want to call this alternative outlaw element there. And when the San Francisco Chronicle got ready to run the story, they confronted the American Motorcycle Association. They go, who are these people? What's, what's this all about? And the American Motorcycle Association replied, they are the one percent that ruin it for us wholesome riders. Mm. And, you know, that was the birth of the one percenter uh, uh, label. And, you know, all the smaller clubs at that time, the clubs weren't very big. They had these one percenter patches made for their uh, jackets. And everybody started wearing them, and they embraced that uh, description. You know, they were the one percent that ruined it for the wholesome guys.
0: Oh, well said. You know, and and George, the one thing I learned, I mean, that I was surprised to learn, was how much history – you know, as far as the Hells Angels And how much of our military You know, how many guys actually Kind of came home and were looking for a, You know, a group to be a part of How many of them kind of Went over, like you, you kind of gave a little bit of a history lesson But how many eventually became Hells Angels I, It was really a surprising Stat for me, George
1: Yeah, you know, there was the Hells Angels The Boost Fighters, the Galloping and Goose uh, You know, a lot of these guys were Former uh, Military guys And uh, uh, you know, so there's always been an element of military structure, even within these outlaw organizations, you know, I mean, they certainly, you know, there was a pecking order, and, you know, before there were uh, voted in leaders, there was always a de facto personality, individuals that led everybody, and I, you know, I think that, A lot of the military training and uh, chain of command was instilled uh, into these outlaw bike clubs. Yeah, which is kind of ironic in a sense because you know they're supposed to just be freewheeling uh, uh, people. But I'll I'll tell you, the not just the Hell's Angels, but all the major uh, bike clubs that are prominent uh, around the world have turned into. You know, big bureaucratic uh, bureaucrats. In a sense, it's very difficult to get things done nowadays. At least it was when I left the club uh, uh, in
0: 2011. Yeah, and I have a, I have a few questions about that for sure. And you know, you you have kind of you're I want to say you're a, not a rebellious kid growing up, but you know, you're a surfer. You, you kind of want your own way, but you have a kind of a unique path here, George. You are um, you're employed by the Department of Defense. You're a former Marine. So your path is not. I mean, I don't know what a conventional path is, quite honestly, but I would think that that's a little bit unconventional. With what your path was. Well, you know, you know it's interesting.
1: I, I have some problems with authority in the military, but I, you know, I, I did pretty well in the military, and I discharged out, got a job with the Department of Defense, the Navy intelligence guys, petitioned me about. Uh, uh, my perception of what was going on in the military, and you know, they suggested I go to point, uh, uh, which I did, and I wound up going to work for the Department of Defense. And I, you know, initially started out, you know, just a, a low level worker, and then I got the top security clearances, and I, I wound up working in the, uh, uh clandestine, uh, you know, missile launching centers. They were testing a lot of missiles out there. There was a submarine surveillance uh, system on Santa Cruz Island. Stuff's all declassified now. Uh, at the time, it was highly secretive. And, you know, they were looking for Russian subs during the Cold War uh, off the coast of California. And there was a direct link from Santa Cruz Island to Washington, D.C. in case they ever located these subs. Uh, so, you know, one of the uh, generals in the Pentagon could. You know, direct them as to what uh, was going to transpire. And my job was to keep uh, everything up and running, Uh, I was a communications troubleshooter.
0: Hmm, and, and, and is the um and the you know just kind of fast forwarding here a little bit? You get your first bike. It's a panhead. It's beautiful. Dad's against it a little bit. Dad's not really for it. Um, I guess my question here is two, George. One is, I know Dad's against it, but does, what does Dad have to say once you kind of become a Hell's Angel? What is kind of the opinion of Dad and Mom at that period?
1: Well, you know it. it, it, it My parents always supported me. You know, a lot of people think, well, the guy's a rebel. He's a hell's angel. He must have come from a a broken uh, home, possibly abused or whatever. You know, but I I didn't. I came from a loving home, very structured, uh, you know, with grandparents and all the cousins, you know, big family gatherings. Mm. And uh, but we've all felt like outsiders. And I think my dad, uh, although, you know, we never had a, a you know, open conversation about it. Uh, I think he knew how I felt. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, there's a short clip uh, of him on NBC News uh, the day I carried the Olympic torch. and You know, he said, they said well what do you think of your son and he he said i'm proud of my son uh, as my son and i'm proud of my son as a health angel so uh-huh. i guess in the end you know he, he he came around i guess if you will but he was very much against the motorcycle uh when i got it but i think worried about uh, you know there was a lot of dynamics you know him and i saw outlaw motorcycles together in 19 maybe 55 I was uh, just a kid, nine, ten years old, and I think he saw I got hooked just looking at this outlaw guy. Uh, uh, you know, and metaphorically, I jumped on the back of that guy's motorcycle and took off with him.
0: <laughs> well said. And, and, you know, one of the things that I – I I just, there's so much about your story that's just, it just pops off, you know. I have to say that it's just, you know, it just seemed like when you fell in love with being an outlaw, wanting to be in a motorcycle, you know, just be out there, it just seems like it was such a, I don't want to sound old school here, but it seems so much more of a genuine time. It seems like as more, as time progressed, things got uglier. And I I don't, I'm not throwing judgment on people, but it it just seems like from when you wanted to be a, uh, you know, you start off with the question marks. I know that, um, and, and then you make your way into the Hell's Angels. It just seems like it was a much more of a pure time, George. A time, just you know, right. get out on your motorcycle, ride, do your thing. It wasn't about revenge or bombs or whatever uh, else people you're, want to say.
1: You're you're very uh, spot on, and I'll tell you, it's. I think the outlaw culture has lost the essence of what it was all about. You know, you know. I used to ride with the question marks, and I'd run with the Saint and Slaves, and you know, we run into the coffin cheaters or the galpin goose and uh, uh, the vagos, whoever it may be. And you know, there may be a disagreement in the bar. You know, nobody went home and got a gun. You know what? you made up after the fight or whatever the confrontation was. And usually the losers bought breakfast, you know, that, and that was the extent of it, you
2: know, yeah,
1: it was, you know, I got the best of you, man, you owe me a breakfast. And, you know, we'd all go out after the bars closed and hang out. It was, it was a pure time. And, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, bas- you know, just bastardized the whole thing was back in those days, you couldn't go into Harley-Davidson and buy a custom-made motorcycle. You had to build it. And if you did not build it yourself, you were not accepted. And not only did you have to build it yourself and create your own custom motorcycle parts, because there were no custom motorcycle shops around. There were few and far between. And when somebody pulled up on a motorcycle that was hand-built, you geographically, geographically could tell where he was from. You know, if this guy was from the Bay Area and he came down to Southern California, you knew he was from the Bay Area by the style of his motorcycle. It was almost like a geographic accent. And it it was a very pure time. Uh, You know, people weren't judging people. People weren't, it was just about riding and partying and, uh, uh, you know, making these connections with these people. It's like, even when I became a hell's angel, like, going and hanging out with the Satan slaves or the losers from Monterey, it, it, it was really exciting for me. And, I, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a romantic, I don't know, but as the things progressed and we got into the 70s and then in the late 70s we got into the confrontation with the Mongols and it, it just it took away, you know, the purity of it, if you will, if you know, some people would, you know, probably argue with that it was never that pure. But you know, it sure the hell was to me because, man, you know, I used to live on my motorcycle. If I wasn't at work, I was on that motorcycle hanging out uh, uh, and having fun. Yeah, and, and it, it,
0: there's it, there there is a bit of nostalgia that you lose over time. It could be whether it's motorcycle or just life in general, and it's like. You know, you, by the time you left in 2011, you're dealing with politics and informants and revenge and all this other murder contracts. You know, I mean, people wonder, oh, you know, I mean, there's people out there. One of my things, George, is I hate people that doubt other one's true story. Right. Because most of the people that know you love you very much and like you very much. They love your story. There's, But you have doubters with anything. They're like, Absolutely. oh, this, yeah, oh, this and that. But it's like. I never doubt somebody's true story because I don't. I don't ever think somebody has a reason to lie. And my 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 thing with 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 you is, it's like I don't know. If I'm looking at everything that unfolded as you know things that were happening to you when you left. Man, I would want out too. I mean, it just it, it became the total opposite of what you loved about no. joining. It, you know. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. You know, one of the
1: things I said a lot of things when I went to the meeting and quit. Which, you know, later uh, some of the leaders that I had uh, uh, problems with, you know, they said I never quit. They kicked me out. No, they didn't kick me out. I went to the meeting, took off my patch, folded it. I didn't see anybody in the room I wanted to pass it to. I put it on the table and I said to everybody, I gave a speech and I closed the speech by saying, you know, I feel we have become the people we rebelled against. Mm, and mm. I'm, I'm on my way out of here. And, you know, all the things you mentioned, uh, you know, prior to me making that statement is, you know, there was a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it uh, social media shaming, which I found ironic that the Hells Angels would go to... Uh, uh, Re- re- resort to so- the social media to shame somebody, and basically, what they did is they took this secret organization that nobody knew what uh, it was all about, and they invited the public who didn't know me, uh, only you know, from reputation or from afar, to indulge in the public shaming of me, and I, I just I found it very ironic, and I found it. Uh, confusing and I found it kind of not shameful as much as I was kind of pitiful you know mm, it, it, mm. It, it was a step down and you know I want to make a statement about that you know people have said a lot of negative things about me people have said a lot of positive things sure but I'll tell you when you know when I got back from prison the word got back to the club that I was going to go on the History channel. And they, I was told by one of the leaders that I couldn't. Uh, and, you know, that's the worst thing you could ever tell somebody that perceives himself as an outlaw. As soon as they said I couldn't, I made up my mind that I would do that. And in addition to that, you know, I was offered the book deal, Exile on Front Street. I want people to understand the History Channel vetted Everything I said, and Thomas Dunn Books vetted everything I said because they didn't want to risk a lawsuit because Sonny Barger and the Hells Angels were sending letters to the History Channel as well as to Thomas Dunn books saying, uh, if, if you move forward with this stuff, we're going to sue you because he's lying. So they vetted what I said, and uh, you know they saw that uh, there was enough Court records and newspaper clippings and police reports and whatnot to substantiate what I was saying. So we went ahead and uh, released uh, the Outlaw Chronicles, all six episodes, in uh, my book.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get to that too, George. Yeah, I mean, I don't care what you do, George, not you, George, but you as anybody, you know, there's always people that want to shit on you because they see, you know, whether you're having success or you're enjoying yourself or you're just happy in life, people get thrills. And I'm not saying that's the case with you, or, but I'm just saying there's people out there like any life story. Like I do a lot of movies, a lot of actors I have on the show. No matter what we're talking about, there's always somebody online that goes, oh, that's not a true story. This, this is what happened. This is what actually happened. There's always somebody ready to tell you the glass is half empty and it's not half full. It's always half empty. you know, And that's. Right. Those are the yeah, people you got. You can't pay any mind to.
1: Well, and you know what's interesting is, you know, I I get hate mail sometimes, and you know, I only answer the creative hate mail. If it's not good, I don't answer it. Uh, uh, but I get this hate mail, and I, you know, I do some research sometimes and get on social media and see who these people are and you know the interesting thing is and I write them back and I say where were you the last 50 years I don't ever remember seeing your face Right? how would you know what did and didn't happen and you know everybody certainly has a perception you know of, of what transpired you know you you have a witness in a court trial and you know you got four or five different lawyers questioning him you're going to get four or five uh uh, uh different answers just by the way that uh, they were questioned and if you're talking five witnesses looking at a specific incident the same thing you're going to get five uh, different perceptions of how it came down
0: Yeah, and you have 40 years of your life invested in the club like there's no reason for you to lie I I don't know I, I just think there's too much evidence that says that you were you were just speaking from what actually happened. That's my opinion. I, I just watched the history channel. Well, I, you know,
1: I, and I appreciate that. And it, you know, and it does, uh, you know, I can say to you, well, you know, this stuff rolls off my back, and I do let it roll off my back, but it, it aggravates you when somebody that wasn't there questions what transpired, you know, because I know that... I participated, I was there, and, you know, there's just a handful of guys left that are still even alive that can truly comment on it. And uh, uh, so what we have to, you know, what we have to rely on is newspapers, uh, uh, you know, uh, court records, uh, uh, whatever it may be, you know, to, to vet the things, uh, you know, people say. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, you talk about the gunfight at the OK Corral. Well, it depends who you were supporting at that gunfight. I mean, you can read the records, and you know, there's a faction that supported the herbs, and there's a, a faction that supported the cowboys. And depending on uh, uh, you know what camp you were in, is how you uh, perceived the uh, the incident.
0: Yeah, and it's it's certainly when you when you research the history of religion, your point is is perfect with that too. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, you know. And, and I want to kind of get into a, a little bit, a, a lot of bit of the History Channel thing. Before I do, though, you know, just so people that haven't seen it, just how people can enter, you know, how how they get part of a motorcycle club. You know, they have hangarounds, right? Is that how it starts, George? Then you go yeah. to Prospect. And then you go to a unanimous vote. just if you don't mind, I know you've talked about this till you're blue in the face. How um, talk a little bit about if, if I said, you know what, it's in my blood. I love being on a motorcycle. I want to be a hell's angel. How would that how does that unfold or, or well, how, how did it unfold back back then?
1: The first thing I would ask you is, you know how do you know it's in your blood? Yeah and true. I'd, I'd say you know uh, how much uh, uh, interaction have you done in this outlaw culture? Who do you know? Who do you admire? Because uh, I want to get in their heads a little bit. You know, like they, they're telling me they admire some guy that's a raving maniac uh, in the club. You know, I'm probably not going to want to embrace them too much uh, <laughs> and bring him into the club. So, you know, I would do my own vetting and uh, ask them questions and whatnot. And and if they seem sincere, uh, you know, uh, I would tell them to start interacting with the members and let them Find out if they like him, but not only during that period of time, he needs to find out if he likes the members, if he likes the lifestyle. You know, a lot of guys, they get in blindly just because they want the they want the ego. uh, You know, they want the pizzazz of being in an outlaw bike club and, you know. The Hells Angels, and, you know, I'm not trying to offend any other uh, clubs out there, but, you know, for a long time, the Hells Angels were the premier bike club, and that's who people were gravitating towards. uh, uh, And you had to be careful who you brought around and who you let in. You had to to have an idea of how they were going to use that patch and that authority and that power once they uh, uh, became a member because in the underworld it's tremendous power. It's like being a made mafia guy
0: mm, mm. it's a lot of power you know? yeah it's you know a hang around is basically somebody that hangs around the club. then the next level is you know what less this person is is potentially worthy of being part of the club they get that prospect. Uh, George, what's the name for the jacket? It's not um, it's, it escapes me now it's not a it's not a vet what do they call it what's the name for it? Well you, you
1: know there's you can call it a cut. Cut, Cut off it, yeah. my patch. Uh, you've got the prospect patch. and You know, that's usually the state bottom rocker. And for the Hells Angels, it's the MC, you know, the Motorcycle Club, uh, the abbreviation MC. They wear that. And then on the front, it has, you know, the town they're from. And it says prospect. Uh, and, you know, it takes you a minimum of 12 months. And once you pass that uh, 12-month period and you're being judged constantly, uh, you know, you'll reach a point in time when within the uh, uh, confines of the meeting hall, the guys are going to say, is this guy going to make it, Or do we send him, you know, do we send him away? And, uh, you know, they'll talk about it and start uh, really seriously uh, contemplating, you know, whether you're going to be beneficial to the club. And then you'll get brought up for a vote. If you If you get voted in, uh, uh immediately that's great but you know some of the charters if you have like two no votes uh, 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 if you're brought up and you get voted down and you get brought up again and you get voted down sometimes the club uh, will suspend your prospecting and just say look you're just not cut out for this or you've got pe- too many people that oppose you because it takes you're right it takes a unanimous 100% vote and that's not always the easiest thing to acquire
0: yeah, and, and I was going to ask you about that because I remember you saying on the, on the special on the History Channel, the Outlaw Chronicles, the Hells Angels. It's such a great, great uh, piece of, of video. Um, you know, it's it's funny because if, if you get voted eight to one, you know, not in the club, then they're they're done, right? They can't, they're, they're not in, even if it's eight to I one. Mean,
1: it's a, it's an absolute one hundred percent vote, and you know there are political moves. You know, you talk about the club being political. The club became very political. You know, there are political moves where people were abstained, you know, and you know, then if the guy turned out to be a bad member, you know, uh, 12 months down the road, people are saying, you know, we got to get rid of this guy, he's a bad apple. You know, I've seen people stand up in the media, well, I never voted for him, I abstained.
2: Mm, Mm.
1: Uh, You know, so you know, there's a lot of political moves in the club, and and, uh, you know, the club changed a lot. Back in the 60s, late 60s, the club trademarked the name Hells Angels and they uh, trademarked the logo. It became intellectual property belonging to the Hells Angels. And then in the 70s, we created uh, a, uh, a trademark board. And there was a time there we had these same lawyers, Limbach, Limbach and Sutton, who had Levi Strauss, Pepsi Cola, MasterCard, uh, uh they were the same attorneys, and those clients found out that this law firm, this prestigious law firm, was representing us, and they didn't want their logos brushing up against ours. And they ultimately gave uh, the law firm an ultimatum, but not before I got a real education in branding. You know, they taught me about brands, they taught me about uh, uh, perception. Uh, They taught me uh, how to use the media uh, to protect your brand and, uh, you know, what it entailed to make your brand something special. You know, it's you know, it's branding at its best, you know, like Coca-Cola, Levi Strauss. And I mean, I'm going to probably make some people cringe out there, but it's like the Kardashians. They're a brand, you know, (laughs) somebody somebody taught them how to develop that brand. And it's just like the uh, uh, these lawyers were giving us an education. They were teaching us how to protect our brand and how to present our brand. You, would, you know, it was, that's what motivated me to carry the torch in the 1984 Olympics when the government was uh, making allegations that we somehow might disrupt the Olympics. You know, I knew from the education I got from these attorneys that if we wanted to protect our brand, and not get smutted up uh, uh, that, you know, we were somehow going to be un-American and disrupt the Olympics. You know, I came to the club and I said, look, we've, we've got to support the Olympics. But not only should we not support the Olympics, we should participate in the Olympics. And this is how we'll do it. We'll carry the Olympic torch in the torch relay and show our
0: support. Things I wanted to ask you, uh, George. One of the one of the bigger things is: Have you ever had a situation where um, somebody wasn't um, approved in the club, and they end up, you know, going to a, like a Mongols or an Outlaws, going to a rival club? Have you have you did you see that unfold a lot, or was that not a? When you
1: say define it a little bit better, because I'm a, I'm a little.
0: Okay, so 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 I'm up. I'm up for uh, my, my prospect. I'm up to, to be a, a, a full member of the club, and I'm I'm voted uh, nine to one no. So obviously, oh, I, I see. Okay, yeah. So so does can I? Do you see the situation where, where I say, you know what, I'm done with the Hell's Angels. I I'm going to see if the Mongols need somebody. I'm going to see if the out. And I know it's yeah. I know it's geographic. I get that. That's that's
1: a really interesting question, and nobody's ever asked. I don't think i been doing interviews since since 1978 i don't think anybody's ever asked me that but that's an interesting question because there was a time even with the outlaw bike clubs we were at war with we had a unwritten rule you don't take our ex people we don't take your ex people but that rule is not honored anymore you'll see people going from one club and becoming part of another club, even maybe in the midst of a uh, combative situation. Uh, but, you know, in the early days, that would never happen. If somebody was uh, a Hell's Angel, they would never get another bike club. If somebody was an outlaw, you know, they couldn't come out to California and make that happen.
0: Yeah, but, and, I uh, so, and, and I was so confused, George, because I'm watching the special, and I'm glad you said that. It's like, I, I think the man's name was um, Chester Green. I think he was like, It was amazing to me how—I hope I have the right guy.
1: Uh, You do have the right guy, and he was a hell's angel up in the Bay Area that testified in a murder trial. He was offered to go in the witness protection program, and he refused, and he thought he would just slip away to Southern California, and he joined the Mongols, (laughs) which— was very offensive to the Hell's Angels.
0: Yeah, and I can see how it would be, and I I was stunned how...
1: I'm going to add this. It's interesting you pick him because he just passed away here recently. No,
0: I didn't know that. I I did not know that.
1: he just... I I got a... uh, It's funny, I get emails from all over the world. Uh, I probably know more about the outlaw bike culture now than when I was in the midst of it (laughs) telling me everything that's going on. And, you know, he, he was in Oklahoma with his brother, Bud, And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that the fight between the Hells Angels and the Mongols was strictly over the California rocker. But it was it was a series of events that transpired one after another. And, you know, the first problem that started with us was that Chester Green testified against the members of the Bay Area against a good friend of mine at one time and then moved to Long Beach and became a Mongol. And, you know, we said to the Mongols, hey, this guy is no good. And, you know, he took the position. No, that's bullshit. And, uh, you know, and he was in the club for years.
0: You know, I and have I a but, I- George, I have so many questions for you, but I, like, I, you just got me thinking about something else. It's too bad people just couldn't put, and this is probably me thinking it's too utopious of a, of a, of a world to have this happen, but it's like I wish, like, your your knowledge of, like, just, Motorcycles and the culture And the Like it would be such a Like I don't care what Club you belong to Like what you have to say If I was interested in Motorcycles and I think They're really you know I think they're all Unbelievably you know Cool this whole spirit of it You know the clubs You have such a great Knowledge of it It's too bad that There's so much red tape Drawn up amongst clubs That you know You have so much knowledge I don't think I think anybody that cares about just clubs or more, I think it would benefit anybody to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, you know, know, it's interesting. You know, I I do a lot of stuff on Instagram, you know, on social media, but I focus mostly on Instagram because that's my biggest social media platform. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people out there that are young writers, they're not involved in clubs, and they are strictly interested in the history, the tradition, and what it was like back in the day. And, you know, what that does my heart good. And I, you know, I think that the Outlaw Chronicles establishes a a good record of what transpired, and, you know, there are books out there, mine being one of them, that uh, uh, really sets the record straight. Because historically— there's gonna, you know, another twenty years. There's gonna be nobody around that was back there when this whole thing started, and uh, uh, so I, I think it's important to have a, a, a written record of it, uh, at the very least.
0: No, I, I completely agree. And as somebody who loves history, you know, I just it's there's something that's sad in that. There's some, but there's also something that's very beautiful in that. And I don't know if I was like if I cared about this, and I do care very much. I loved your story. Like I'd want to hear it. Like I'm not. A, I don't ride a motorcycle. I don't. But I care about what you have to say. I think it's. I think it's really fantastic. I mean, it's been around. It has passion and loves it. It has a. You know, it's 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 a it's a generational thing, right? People pass things on. And right. I don't know Absolutely. if you care about motorcycles. If you care about clubs, put hit the pause button on any feud you might have and just listen. I mean, well, maybe you know, I'm being too pause. optimistic.
1: Hit the pause button, anyways, because it, uh, violence against. People that have the same interest and love of motorcycles and riding as you, what's the point? Right? You know, because because you were born in California and the other guy was born in Chicago. It, you know, it, it doesn't. It never made any sense to me. It was you know. And I used to tell people when I petitioned them for peace talks, I'd say, "Look, you know, if I was born in uh, your area." I'm sure I would have been, if I was born in Texas, I would have been a bandito, (laughs) and, uh, you know, if you would have been born in California, you'd be a hell's angel, there's no doubt in my mind, and, you know, that was how I thought, you know, let, let me, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories, Sure. and when I was a young guy in the 70s, you know, I was kind of established myself, people were getting to know me, I was a mechanic, and I was I, I wasn't a club member, but I was an independent, hanging out with all the outlaw bike clubs, which was not an easy task uh, as an independent. And uh, one of the question marks, David Ortega and I uh, knew this guy who was a galloping goose, and he was at, he was actually at Hollister for that uh, first rally that, you know, we were branded the one percenters. And, you know... We used to love to, we called this guy the old goose. Tom Noel was his name. And he wound up restoring uh, slot machines. And that's, you know, he had got too old to ride, but he was still tinkering with stuff. And he became a collector of old slot machines. And we used to go to his house just to hear the stories and get the tradition passed down to us. Same thing with anybody that's read uh, Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels. Mm. There was a character in that called Smacky Jack from the Saint Slaves. And the rumor was he, you know, he carried a pair of pliers and a little leather bag on his belt. And, uh, you know, he would pull people's teeth out, you know, if he got in a fight with it. (laughs) Now I never saw him pull anybody's teeth out, but I will tell you, I knew Smacky Jack and he, he had a pair of pliers and a leather pouch he used to wear on his belt. You know, this was the late '60s, and I was I was a kid, and I was partying with the same Slaves up on Kern River, and Smacky uh, was real late, and we were him and I were talking. There was a couple of other people, and there was, we started talking about the, Have you ever seen the Takati poster by Dave Mann?
0: Yes, yes.
1: Okay, so I said the Smacky Jack. I go, uh, what do you think of that Takati poster, Jack? Because he was there. And he said, oh, man. He goes, this stuff is all turning into myth and legend. And he goes, he goes, just like that poster. <laughs> he goes, you know what, man? They said we went down there and burned down the whole uh, town. And then he looks at me, and I don't know if he's telling a story, if he's telling the truth, or if he's performing for me. And he said, you know, George, because we didn't burn that whole town down, we burned one street. And then he paused and he looked at me and the guy sitting there. He goes, "You know what? That town only was one street." <laughs> so, you, you know, was he was he performing? Was he? I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, that was the story he told. It. You know, he was mad at Dave Mann. Dave Mann was an El and the El were were a club in the Midwest started by. A Saint Slave, a guy named Tiny uh, from San Fernando Valley. So, you know, everybody was connected back in those days. You know, like Dave Mann and I were good friends. I've got Dave Mann's whole collection uh, he personally gave to me uh, of all the posters he did for uh, Big Daddy Ross uh, in the 60s. Wow. And I also have three personal uh, Hand painted uh, paintings he did for me of uh, me carrying the torch. Uh, one of the question marks uh, when I was hanging out with them, uh, we got in a fight with this other bike club, and it. This was back in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, and it became kind of a legend in the Ventura area. Uh, it was like three of us that fought these thirty guys you know, from several different bike clubs, and I mean, we got the hell beat out of us, but. We didn't leave. We were still standing in the morning when the sun came up. And that was the whole thing back in the old days. Nobody runs you off. And Dave Mann did a, uh, uh, you know, he did an art piece of of that particular night for me. You know, I have it hanging. I'm looking at it right now here in my uh, office. So, you know, there's so much rich history and and culture. And I, I want the people that care about it to know about it and you know I've been criticized well you're you're a rat you're telling everybody uh, uh, what transpired you're damn right I am and you know what so did Sonny Barger he's written three or four books Mm. and so have other prominent members and Mm. you know what I feel that I have an obligation to write it down and then the readers can interpret it for what it is whether they believe it or if they don't believe it but when we did the history channel I was introduced to a whole group of riders, and these guys—they were the bike wranglers for all the bikes for the recreations on the show. And these guys were all in their twenties, early thirties, and they were all riding bikes that looked like they came out of the sixties and seventies. And these guys were riding them, and you know, it was so fun for me because I—you know—I'll be honest with you—I was a little despondent. I had come home from prison, and you know, I was having all these false accusations thrown at me. And, you know, I had mixed emotions about doing the uh, well Hot Chronicles. Should I or shouldn't I? And I ultimately decided to do it. And when I met these bike wranglers, uh, it was like stepping back in time. It was just really, it was like a shot in the arm for me.
0: It, to hear you talk, it's like, it's like the Wild West redone again. It's like, it, yeah. you know, it really is. And it's like when people talk about the Wild West, there was some... And I'm not saying this is you, but there were some characters there that, you know, weren't exactly uh, a good people, but people kind of fawn over them and they're like like in love with them. But it's like people love that history and like you're here to tell like almost a second wave of that. Like I just. I
1: don't know. You're absolutely right. And I, you know, it's, I'll tell you, I, I would go down to uh, I would go down as an independent the question marks were having a rough time their leader got stabbed and he was partially paralyzed dick woods he was a leader and mentor to me taught me a lot of stuff Uh, unbelievable crap let me tell you how good this guy was as a uh, fabricator and a bike builder when he got stabbed the movie land cars of the stars uh, uh i don't know if you've ever heard of that place uh Dick Woods was the fabricator and the maintenance man for Movieland Cars of the Stars mm. and the Brooker, Brooker Car Rental Service for motion pictures. Uh, Von Dutch took his place. That's how good Dick Woods was. Wow. And Dick Woods is just an obscure figure now uh, who I talk about in one of my books uh, as a fictional character because I don't want him to be lost in time. You know, He was cremated and we had his ashes in a special place in our clubhouse and the clubhouse got raided and we didn't have a certificate for his ashes. And one of the cops came up with the idea to confiscate the ashes. And I, I don't know what happened to his ashes. You know, I, it, you know, it just really upset me. They disappeared over the years, but I, I got off track, but, uh, th- this is a real historic part of America. You know, the outlaw bike culture, was birthed in the United States, just like jazz. Mm. Jazz was birthed here in the United States, and it's spread and it's loved around the world. And so is the outlaw bike uh, culture. And like I was saying, I you know, I used to, when the question marks slowed down their participation, some of the guys went to prison, and Dick was wounded. I used to jump on my bike, and I would go down in the valley looking for these guys, looking for the same slaves, or the, the goose, or, or the cop and cheaters. And I started... Figuring out where the slaves hung out, and I started hanging out there. You know, you you just had to have the balls to show up, and you had to you had to act right. You you know, there was a bunch of unwritten rules that uh, uh, you had to go by, and it didn't take you long to figure them out because if you didn't go by them, you got lumped up. and uh, And if you held your ground, even if you lost, they these guys accepted you. And then I started getting invitations from the slaves. Hey, you're going to write back to. You know the Ventura tonight. Uh, don't write back, man. Come and stay. And I started sleeping on the couches at Saint Slaves' houses, and you know became very close to these guys. I came became very close to joining that club. And uh, you know, I always found the Saint Slaves. I just held these guys in awe. We would ride from bar to bar, hundred miles an hour. You know, in Mm. the valley. Mm. Everybody had the best custom bikes in Southern California, you know, and I had one too. You know, that's why they liked me. I was always on my bike and uh, I had hand built it. You know, this I didn't have the Panhead anymore. I was now riding a Flathead. And uh, these are very unique times that they can't be relived. But, you know, I know that they have this Born Free rallies and uh, these different bike events. And uh, it just does my heart good when uh, I hear people talking about them and people recreating these bikes from back in that, from that. Era, you know, yeah, it's, it's just
0: cool. It's amazing how much you did try to, to, to implement peace, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But I, you know, the Outlaw Chronicles on on, on the History Channel. I, I never thought you once made the Hells Angels look bad, but that's just my oh boy, opinion. I, that, that wasn't my intent. You, you, know, you did I not. You that did. Intent. I felt. I felt. If anything, you were honest, and it did not make the Hells Angels look like a bad. I, I don't think it. you I, I didn't think.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. You know, we've got we've got this crazy political climate that we're going through right now. And back in 1979, that's the first time the government came after us, and they came after us as uh, racketeers, the Rico racketeering influence corrupt organization uh, indictment. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure your listeners know what that is. Some of them at least do. Yeah. And they said we were a criminal organization. And this is ironic. Do you know who the prosecutor was
0: for that case? Uh, Was it Mueller? Robert Mueller. Mueller, that's it. I'm sorry, Robert Mueller. That's right. Robert Mueller. That's right. And
1: my position back then and my position... Through the years, when I was an active member, in my position now, I've got no axe to grind with the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels is not a criminal organization, along with all these other outlaw bike clubs. But I have to, I have to acquiesce because the record speaks for itself. There are organizations with criminals in it, <laughs> <laughs> and I being one of them when I was a member, I had a, you know, I had uh, felonies,
0: you know. You know, I, well, I have to tell you that, you know, the state I live in, um, they just had a huge raid on the state police because they were abusing overtime, George. And a lot of these guys were faking pulling in a quarter million dollars a year for about 10, 12 years. So it's funny what we call a criminal and who is and who isn't. But, um, you, you know, what, I, I had to ask you, what's your, what, what was your opinion on Sons of Anarchy on, on the show?
1: Well, you're going you're gonna to think I'm not telling you the truth.
0: I've never watched it. I believe it. I, I totally and, believe
1: it. yeah, but what's interesting is I my last trial I got died in twenty I got they started investigating me in two thousand seven. In twenty eleven they finally got two ex members to say I ordered them. To firebomb uh, these tattoo shops, and they indicted me after I quit the club. You know, they told me there was a murder contract on me. They tried to get me to flip and you know go to work for them, and you know I wouldn't do it. I got indicted. They said if you don't, we're going to indict you. I said indict me. They indicted me, and we went. We started to go to trial. We were picking a jury in uh, 2013. That's how long it took us uh, uh, to resolve this case. And one of the questions... My daughter was one of my lawyers. My oldest daughter's a criminal lawyer. She represents me on, on many issues. And one of the questions I came up with was... We asked the jury, do you watch Sons of Anarchy? And if the question was yes, do you understand that's a dramatic television show not based in reality? And if they said no... Then we would go further. We'd say, "Now, Mr. Christie, as he sits here in this courtroom, after watching Sons of Anarchy, do you think Mr. Christie has knowledge of every member's uh, a- activities?" And if they said yes, we bounced him off the jury. You know, uh, uh, because <laughs> that's how much Sons of Anarchy impacted the American psyche. People thought that that was.
0: That show was reality. In a show, George, that you just said this—that is, I mean, you haven't seen it, but that—that uh, that, you know, I watched it. My girlfriend loved it, so we we watched it. It was so far over the top. And if you watch the show, ninety-eight percent of what goes on in the club is illegal, or awful, or horrible, or terrible. Like there's no good things being done. Like you mentioned, you, you know, you were you, you had the Olympic torch. How awesome of a moment is that? Like you. You did a lot of positive things with, you know, special. Oh, you guys did a lot of great things, and you never see that on an episode of Sons of Anarchy. Give me a break. you know it's interesting. I don't know if you know
1: this. I have a consulting uh, company where I work with defense uh, attorneys. I think you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Uh, uh, like a, if they get white collar criminals, and if the guy's having a hard time. You know, uh, come to terms with the judicial process he's going through. The, these high power lawyers will hire me, and I'll go down and I'll, I'll go to court with these guys when they go to court, and I'll hold their hand and I'll explain things to them. Uh, uh, you know, I have like a program where I, what I tell them they can't do because they're going to get themselves deeper into trouble uh, by you know approaching witnesses, uh, 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 you know, trying to. Uh, shift the evidence, if you will. But anyways, I, you know, this is a funny story. and This has happened more than once. I have these white collar criminals. I had one guy that worked for a big movie uh, company and he embezzled a bunch of money, a large sum of money from them, and got caught and he got indicted and they hired me as a consultant, uh, you know, to hold his hand and he was having a bad day. And I asked him, I go, what's wrong? And his response to me, he said, they're treating me like a criminal, George. And I said, well, my friend, <laughs> we're both criminals. <laughs> I said, I'm a felon, and you're a felon now too, in all likelihood. So, you know, you, you, you talk about that culture. The, the culture was outlaws, but, you know, to live in an outlaw society, you have to have high standards or you don't last very long. And that may sound ironic. It may sound hypocritical. But this is the absolute truth.
0: Yeah. And I got to tell you, George, what you're just saying, your life story reminds me a combination of a few movies. It reminds me a little bit of, of Blow with Johnny Depp, not because of any drugs or illegal, just how you kind of spend your life. And the other thing is the Bronx Tale, how people... Embrace the club, you know. Old school when it was in their neighborhood. Like there was no BS going on in neighborhoods. If you had a, I'm guessing from what I've read, if you had a club in your neighborhood, if I was, you know, say if I had a Hell's Angels, you know, on my corner, I know there's not a lot of stuff that's going to go down there. If we're talking, you know, you know, fifties and sixties and probably fifties, but sixties and seventies, you know, I don't know. I just think that it's just how things, I, are, you know you know I can tell you with uh, uh, and
1: you know some people may think I'm being boisterous boisterous and cavalier but I'm not we ran Ventura with an iron hand and we controlled all the underworld activities and I'm you know some of the guys did sell dope and they got caught you know the guys that did got caught and they went and did their time they didn't cry about it Uh, but the crime rate it's now out of control in Ventura. When we were there, and there's some old cops that I know, and they tell me, they go, I wish you guys had control of them streets down there. And I, you know, I, my comment to them is, you know, that's a time that's come and gone, and, you know, well, we just have to accept, you know, where society is heading. But there was a time the police would turn their head. They let us handle the streets. Uh, they didn't want to get involved because the judicial process is very uh, uh, tedious and it doesn't always uh, balance out. You know, a lot of innocent people go to prison, a lot of guilty people walk the streets. Mm. So they were they were willing just to let us deal with it. Uh, our justice was was very uh, swift and uh, uh, sometimes absolute.
0: <clears throat> yeah, well said, George. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know. We talked about what it took to, to become a, a club member. Um, is there a fast track to that? Because, like, so in other words, if I saved a life of somebody and I was maybe a hang around or whatever, is there a fast track? Because in the, in the history channel, Sonny goes to Arizona. And all of a sudden, there's a 100 people from some other gang that are now Hells Angels, seemingly in a pretty quick pace. You know, when, when you consider the process of, you know, hang around and, you know, prospecting, well, you, you got to pay your dues. I, well, I don't what, you have
1: to, what you have to understand is you're referring to the Dirty Dozen. Uh, that's a former club, and they ruled Arizona with an iron hand uh, ever since I was in the outlaw bike culture. So they were very well established. Everybody, had, uh, uh, everybody in our club had a relationship with him, and it, it may have seemed very swift, but it, it did take some time, and ultimately, uh, Sonny wanted to move to Arizona, when he came back from prison in the late 90s, uh, the club had changed uh, somewhat, the power base had switched, You know there were things Sonny wanted to do, and he wasn't getting his way anymore. And you got, you know, the tenacity of that guy. I mean, I got to tip my hat to him. Him and I are at odds with each other, but I respect him. Uh, Don't agree with him. Uh, Didn't agree on his leadership skills or style, but you know he could get people to follow him. And uh, you know what, he wanted to start over, and he wanted to have control. And you know what. He created that whole state of Arizona. You
0: know? Yeah, and one of the things that I, when I was watching, I said, I got to tell George this, is the, the, um, you had such an admiration. And I hope people that watch the, the History Channel part picked up on this. You really had a respect and I don't want to say a love. I don't want to be over the top, but you, you really, well, had, Old Man John was a big influence to you, I think.
1: Yeah, I loved Old Man John. and You know, I'll tell you. I was an early member in the club. Sonny comes home from prison, and you know I was a—I uh, was one of the up-and-coming leaders. There was another Hell's Angel named Irish O'Farrell. Uh, we called him Irish. Uh, we were both from the Los Angeles Hell's Angels, so we had a—we had a—a a, a, a bond. We were from the Los Angeles Hell's Angels, and I remember the cops. Came to Lake Shasta. We had a big run up there, and the, the cops tried to to like chase the guy into the run. And Sonny, we were like a V, and Sonny was in front. I was on his right shoulder, and Irish was on his left shoulder. And you know what, man? We stood off the cops, and you know, Sunny said, "You guys ain't coming in here." This is before he lost his uh, vocal cords, and he just said, "You guys aren't coming in here. If you do, you know what's going to happen." And uh, uh, I looked over my shoulder, and every Hells Angel that was there was behind us. And it was just like a big V. And, you know, the cops looked and they thought about it. And uh, I thought to myself, that's the image I always had of of Sonny Irish and myself on his shoulders. Uh, You know, he was, that's how I saw him. Like I said, in the end, uh, I started disagreeing with uh, the way he uh, ran things. You know, I, I had, as a leader, I used to tell people, don't make yourself bigger than the position you represent. And mm. uh, Sony liked to make himself big.
0: <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. And, you know, um, what year did old, uh, old man J- uh, John pass away, George? In the uh, uh, early 80s.
1: You know, he he was the president of Los Angeles, and he was my mentor, and uh, he— Brought me in as vice president of Los Angeles, and then I took over Los Angeles. And then we moved the club, uh, uh, you know, to Ventura. And he showed up at the clubhouse uh, uh, once, uh, and I can tell something was on his mind. And, you know, I, I made a comment earlier that people wouldn't have picked up on, but they'll understand now what I was saying. He, he came to me and he told me, he says, I got cancer. And he goes, I'm dying. Mm. And uh, he took his patch off, and he folded it, and he handed it to me like a flag. And, you know, like I stated earlier, when I went to the clubhouse that night, I took my patch off, and I folded it, and I didn't see anybody to pass it to. Mm. And I, I put it on the table. That's how much the club had changed in that 30 years, 40 years. And, you know, John went up to the mountains to live out his life, you know, his this cancer was eating him up. And uh, I used to go up there and visit him, take the new members up there and interact with him. And uh, we had snuck out of L.A. Uh, they were wound up investigating the wrong people. There was a bunch of stuff that went on down there. And they were investigating the wrong guys. And the case went cold. And then they figured out what happened. And when John went up in the mountains to die, the cops went up there. And they told him, they go, hey, you know what, man, that was pretty pretty slick. You guys slipped off to Ventura. But now we know what happened. We figured it out. We know you're dying, John, and we're going to give you the opportunity to clear your conscience. We know about uh, the murders and the bombings and this and that. We're going to let you clear your conscience. And we're not even going to come after you because we don't give a damn about you. You're going to be dead in a couple of months. But I'll tell you who we want is we want George Christie. Mm -hmm. And John looked at them This was told to me, and he said, Christy, never heard of him. And that old man, he went out like an outlaw, and he went out protecting me. And, uh, you know, so, I I mean, how could you not? And how could you ever forget that guy?
0: George, what do you think he would have said about how you left the... And I think you had no other choice but to leave. I, I think just think it was a different time. We we talked about this. But what would he have said about, one, what happened to you and how you left, and, two, what would he have said about Sonny?
1: Well, him and Sonny didn't get along.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So it it was a, a, a real issue of contention between them all the time. And, you know, my love for old man John, and, you know, listen, either you're in or you're out. And that's at any type of uh, organization or gang or syndicate or whatever you want to call it, even in a, uh, a, you know, a classical company, if you will, if you're, if you're in, you're in, if you're out, you're out, you're no longer part of that. And when John left the club, there was a character assassination of it, which I wouldn't allow, you know, I wouldn't tolerate it. And, uh, you know, you know, Sonny was, he resented me for it, but he respected me for it, if that makes any sense to you. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, um, at my 35-year anniversary, we were partying, and it was a big party, people from all over the world were there, and Sonny didn't show up, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and... You know, that was the thing. Sonny and I were uh, at odds at the time, and, you know, people were betting, is he coming, is he not coming? And then, about 11, 11.30 before midnight, uh, you hear a bunch of bikes out front, and then the, there's a rumor through the clubhouse, Sonny's here, Sonny Barger's here. And uh, Sonny walked in, and the whole room stopped. It literally, like slow motion, and... You know, there was music playing and whatnot, but everything was in slow motion. And I walked over to Sonny, and I was so, I mean, we
2: were so mad at each other, but I was so excited he was there. Mm.
1: And I put my arms around him, and I kissed him on the cheek, and he kissed me on the cheek. And I said, I didn't think you were coming, Ralph. That's what what we call him, you know, close. And... He goes, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And I said to him, I go, there's nobody else I'd rather have here. And we hugged and we didn't say anything the rest of the night. And, you know, that was one of the last times I talked to him and then, you know, like five years went uh, by and, you know, like I said, we were at odds with each other and, you know, it took me a few years. And, uh, you know, I had been on this peace uh, journey with all these outlaw bike clubs and, you know, we had had a moratorium on all the violence. With the outlaws, the banditos, the Mongols, uh, uh, anybody that we were having conflicts conflicts with. And then it all started unraveling. And, you know, one of the other things I said at the meeting when I got there, I said, you know, we're running out of people to fight. Mm. And I said, when we run out of people to fight, I said, if you study your history, all great cultures, when they've destroyed everybody around them and they're now dominant, they turn inward. And they fight with each other. And I said, I don't want to be here for that, guys. And, uh, you know, it, it was a tough decision. It's a, it's an, It was an emotional decision. A tough decision. Uh, do I have any regrets? No, it was something I had to do. Do I wish it hadn't turned out that way? You know, I wonder you know, what it would have been like if it hadn't turned out that way. But, you know, it is what it is. I can't change it, and I'm not going to cry about it. I wouldn't change anything. I'm happy with everything I did, Uh, you know, everything, including the indictments and the jail time and uh, uh, the conflicts. uh, uh, You know, it was all part of who I am and, you know, how I established myself.
0: You know, and it's too bad, too, George, because everyone—I don't care if you're in a club or what—everyone has somebody that they don't speak to anymore, and, and for, for for whatever reason, whoever's right or wrong, do you see your and Sonny's uh, rapport as is it is it not savable at this point? Is it something? Oh, that- I,
1: I, no, I, I don't. I think Sonny's too proud. Uh, you know what? I would love. Uh, uh, for him to call me and not—it doesn't have to. My status doesn't have to change. You know what's happened has happened, but I would love for him to uh, call me and bury the hatchet, if you will. But I—I I fear he'd like to bury the hatchet in my head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Though all joking aside, though George, you're you're really good at burying the hatchet because you—I feel like all the research I did on your life, like I felt like. A lot of it was you trying to make peace. Whether it's you going by yourself to, I, I think it was the outlaws or yeah, uh, Taco Bowman. Yes, you you went out on your own. Your your whole thing. You could even count the Olympics in this. Is trying to make peace. Trying to kind of smooth things down so there's not like a lot of uproar and for anybody that doesn't see that and comments negatively on you i'm sorry that's the definition of ignorance Well,
1: well you know it's interesting when i went to see taco bowman i didn't know him i was unannounced i showed up there and the outlaws like just like 10 of them just swarmed me and they go what the hell are you doing here and I go I came to see Taco and the one guy said to me because are you fucking crazy and uh, I said I don't know maybe and they go wait here and they like surrounded me I mean they didn't put their hands on me and they were they were very respectful and they went and got Taco and then Taco's walking towards us shaking his head but he was smiling and I looked at this outlaw and I go well I said he's smiling I go isn't that a good thing and uh, Taco and I really hit it off Uh You know, we negotiated and we became friends and uh, we had a moratorium on all the violence for several years. And then it unraveled and he put a uh, murder contract on me. And, you know, the guys uh, came to Ventura to assassinate me. Uh, The FBI was following them. They got caught. Uh, uh, One of the guys on the hit team rolled on taco taco wound up getting indicted he went to prison for racketeering and some murders and then he got an additional 10 years for the uh, murder contract on me and i got the word from this member called ace uh from back east uh, outlaw he said hey taco wants to talk to you and i had not talked to him uh since the late 90s and i said well have him call me And he, he called me and you know it, it's funny the nerve on this guy you know why he called me? He wanted my daughter to help with his appeals.
2: Wow. <laughs>
1: the balls on that guy. And you know what? I said, okay, Taco, you want her to help you? She'll help you. And she wound up working with Henry Gonzalez, uh, uh, Harry Harry Taco Bowman's lawyer. But, uh, wow. you know, and I think it, it, it adds credence to what you just said. You can't take this stuff personal. It's just all business and, you know taco and i were making progress and then taco started getting confronted by his younger members that he was getting soft and he was getting weak and why are you negotiating with george christie you know to hell with these guys and you know to show that uh he wasn't uh old and he wasn't weak he, you know he sent these guys out to ventura to murder me wow
0: uh george i have you've given me over an hour of your time i have a few more questions can i is that okay right. if i ask you um, you can. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I have to say, so you spent a year in solitary, and um, I used to, you know, with friends. And I said, if I ever had to go to prison, if I ever had to defend my home and you know shoot somebody or whatever, if I had to go to jail, I always used to say, you know, I'd want solitary. And then you know, oh, no you don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, when, when I heard when I've heard a lot of the stuff you said, because my point is, I, I would want to be away from the general population, but. I think what this does to your mind. There's a documentary on Netflix. I'm not going to get into it, but it's the the kid spends a year in solitary. It eventually contributes to his suicide. But um, oh
1: yeah, it's 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 uh, oldest form of torture. It's sensory deprivation. You're in this environment where you have no contact uh, with anybody. The lights are never off. You lose conception of what time it is because you don't, you know, you don't have a clock. You don't have access to a clock. You don't have a TV. You don't have a radio. Uh, uh, like myself personally, they were restricting my mail. I got in trouble in there for disciplinary reasons. They put me on a disciplinary diet where you only get fed twice a day. You get a protein loaf uh, and carbohydrate loaf. With just enough calories uh, uh, to sustain you, and they feed you in the morning with bread and water, and then they feed you in the evening with bread and water. Wow! And uh, you know, they're in, they're trying to break you, and you know, you you spend your time down there, and they observe you and they watch you, and when they think you're starting to unravel, they bring in the nurse. And the nurse evaluates you, and then they'll prescribe antipsychotic meds uh, for you. Now, that's an insidious situation where you would take another human being and put them in an environment that you would have to medicate them. So they don't lose their mind.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, not to mention, George, at the time, you're, you know, a lot of things have happened here. Right. So 9-11 has come to pass. Your your, your, your poor mother isn't, in, isn't, in, isn't not, her health isn't great. So it's, it's what's going on on the outside of the walls that also plays into your psyche.
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, when 9-11 hit, I had got to make a phone call. In the midst of 9 11, you know, you, you get a call every few days, and I, you know, I called my wife Nikki, and she said, "Oh my God!" She goes, "They just, they just flew a plane into the uh, twin towers," and you know, and my response to her was, "No, they they couldn't have done that." She goes, "I'm telling you," and then she goes, "Oh my God!" This will give you some uh, time frame. She goes, "Oh my God!" They, another one just. Uh, went into the building. She was watching TV at home. And I go, what? And shortly after that, they locked the prison down. And then one of the guards was one of the, you know, there are good guards that are compassionate and there's really abrasive guards. And I asked one of the guards, I said, so what's going on out there? And he, basically he said, none of your goddamn business. He goes, your world's in here. Don't worry about the outside. Wow. And You know, I had to wait like, Told so the shift change, and the next guard was pretty cool, and he said, "Yeah, this is what's going on, you know." And uh, you know, so you know, there are compassionate guards in there. They are uh, uh, abrasive, aggressive guards in there, but I'll tell you, uh, you don't want to spend your time in solitary confinement. You know, it's a, uh, uh, it's a very, uh, it impacts you. You know, and I, I got to be honest with you. I feel I'm a pretty strong-willed individual strong mind and whatnot sure but, but i think it did scar me a bit and uh, i can't imagine the guys that spend 10 15 years in solitary confinement because most of them wind up losing their minds
0: oh yeah and, I, uh, yeah from what you're saying i can't, I can't yeah. even imagine it and you know you mentioned you know 9-11 and you know is this a safe uh, statement to make? And I'm probably being a little bit underrated here. Um, the, the Hell's Angels were, were very pro troops in the Vietnam War, right? They were very much for the troops. Well,
1: like I said, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the guys uh, are you know veterans. You know, I was a former Marine. Uh, you know, I think that listen, it, it, if war. There has to be a political agenda after a war. You can't fight a war forever. Like, we're in this war in Afghanistan. We're going on, what, 18 years? Uh, there has to be an end to it. There has to be a political agenda. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? And, you know, I think that uh, I think we've, we've made some mistakes. I You know, I don't want to offend people out there. I support the troops. I've got... Ex-friends, I you know I spent an hour on the phone with a Navy SEAL a couple of days ago. He's getting ready to write a book, and I'm helping him with a literary agent, and whatnot. I'm you know pro-military. I I don't think uh, uh, I'm not a peacenik, but I don't. You war, there has to be a political agenda behind it. You have to be trying to achieve something. Uh, war for the sake of war, it doesn't serve mankind.
0: Mm, I agree. I completely agree. And I have two questions left for you. So, researching you, I mean, obviously, sometimes you stumble onto Sonny. One of the names I kept seeing, and I, and I recognized him from the Howard Stern show, is a guy named Chuck Zito. Is that a name familiar to you? Uh, I know Joe, Chuck well. So, is what is your thoughts on him? Like, I, I'm confused. Is his role into the... the the club is a bike the, culture. Okay, Chuck quit the club
1: in uh, uh, the mid 2000s, maybe early 2000s. I can't remember when it was. And uh, he went on to work on his movie career and uh, his martial arts and whatnot. And, you know, Chuck is a great guy, uh, I had a lot of good times with him. Uh, Chuck still has a, I guess what you call a working relationship with the Hells Angels. He's still on good terms with them. Mm. I, uh, I haven't seen him since my departure, but you know that can happen. You know, you you can uh, remain out of the club, but you know Chuck. I think Chuck's a very smart guy, and I, I Chuck Chuck knows it's a slippery slope. No longer being a member, and you know he's very uh, astute at what he does and what he says. And me, on the other hand, uh, you know well, I was told you know I couldn't do the Outlaw Chronicles. I did it. I was told I couldn't write a book. You know I wrote a book. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so, uh, but Chuck, yeah, Chuck is, was good friends with Howard Stern. Uh, he was a member of New York. Uh,
0: uh, you know, he, one of the guys I miss. You know, he was a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I just, obviously, I have a lot of respect for you. I have, I respect history and tradition. I just don't think you were done right. I think somebody that invests 40 years to a club that never turned on that club, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I hope I'm not putting myself in any position here. I just think that. Well, you,
1: I, I just think it's an opinion. And I, I think that, you know, if, if somebody was there or somebody had the opportunity. They probably tell you, "Well, it's none of your business," you know. But right. you know, and there are people that that still insist that that I testified against somebody. You know, no where's way. The paperwork. Who did I testify? No what way. Trial was this. Yep, Where no, was it at? No way. You know, it's it's just it's a rumor that got started, and uh, uh, I I don't I try to take the high road, but. I did want the record set straight, and that's why I did the Outlaw Chronicles. That's why I writ, uh, wrote the book, and that's why I do my state show. You know, I have a live state show I do now, kind of based after my book and the Outlaw Chronicles. And you know, I'm having a blast. And, uh,
0: yeah, and you know, I was, some, you know I, was su- I was surprised on two things, George. One, how many people from Massachusetts, because that's my state, were, were, were in the Hell's Angels. I said. There's no way I'm going to see somebody with a with a cut that says Massachusetts in the in the History Channel, and there was a lot of people. Sure. And, and, and two, the second question I had for you, and I have one more left for you. The, the, um, did you have anybody help you with the training for you? You have a one man, um, like a, a, i want to call it a play or a performance. Did you have an actor work with you on that before you? No,
1: I, I, I did not. You know, I, uh, uh, you know, it's funny when I did the Outlaw Chronicles, I just showed up there. They have that little dark room with a table for me to sit at, and I just start telling stories. And it's interesting. I found that, you know, I really have the ability to uh, uh, generate my experiences into a uh, linear stories. And, you know, I, I also give lectures. I just gave a lecture at the Monterey Naval Academy on leadership a couple of weeks ago. Wow. I give lectures. I gave a lecture in Philadelphia on uh, uh, prison uh, reform and whatnot to the Wardens Union uh, you know, I give lectures to defense lawyers. I gave a lecture to a corporation on uh, how to structure their corporation like an outlaw bike club. Uh, how, <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I've been having a blast. And I, no, I, I haven't received any professional training, but I'll tell you, I've been on a lot of movie sets, like David Carradine and I were good friends. Michael uh, Bowen, who's been in a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, he was uh, uh, Uncle Jack on. Uh, Breaking Bad yep. uh, you know I've, I've been around these guys and I've watched them on sets so I've been in movies with uh, Michael Bowen uh, it was a blast we played a, a cops that arrested the wrong guy for a murder <laughs> 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 which I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed that role so you know I Mickey Rourke and I go back 40 years you know I've, I've, I've never had any professional training but I I just kind of found a new home I've been getting a, a very good uh Response from the critics, and uh, you know, we just came off a six uh, performance uh, run down in Los Angeles that uh, was very successful. It was critically acclaimed. We had good audiences, uh, and uh, you know, people show up uh, in the movie industry. They, you know, they go to theater in Los Angeles. I guess it's the thing to do, mm. and it's it's really it's cool, you know. Uh, uh, you get, uh, these actors show up, uh, and then they, at the end of the show, they, you know, they commend you. They go, wow, that's really great. And, uh, wow. It makes you feel good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And before I let you go and I give you a chance to promote all the great things you're doing, um, basically, George, when you look back, what is the best time of your life? It doesn't have to be a day. It could be a decade. It could be, we kind of harped on this a little bit during the interview. When you look back and you're like, you know what, um, Uh, You know, I look back at my life I'm not going to ask you regrets Any of that stuff You've been asked that a million times You look back at your life You you say, you know This is the time of my life Where everything just seemed great It just seemed to click I loved it
1: Well, you know I'll frame it in this way There's moments out of the 60s like running around with the Satan Slaves, meeting old man John up on Kern River and watching the Hells Angels ride into this place, uh, uh, you know, and just kind of snatch me up, uh, you know, become one of them. Uh, becoming a leader in the 70s and realizing, you know, I had a tiger by the tail. Becoming great friends with the Grateful Dead and, you know, Jerry Garcia and I becoming good friends. That's right, yeah. Uh, and, in the nineties watching all the young guys come in the club, uh, uh, and, you know, for a brief moment thinking, uh, uh you know, this is really going to be terrific. And the, you know, the club's going to change direction and we're going to get back to the roots. Uh, so I, you know, I, I have different little sections, but you know, I got to tell you the sixties, you know, I love the sixties. And, uh, yeah. it, was, yeah, it was a it's... special time, you know, I mean, uh, if you weren't there, you know it's hard to explain it, and uh, uh, it was just a very unique uh, period in time.
0: No, George, you're a good dude. I like you a lot, and and I, and I love your ability to just talk about history and just it's just to me, I love it. I'm a historian. I love everything that you kind of say here, George. Promote anything you'd like. You know, you got a couple books out there. You got your awesome one stage, uh, your, your your performance. What, what do you want I, to throw? What do you want to throw out I'll there? I'll tell you what I want to promote. Okay.
1: I want the bike culture to get back to its roots. I want them to start accepting people for who they are. You know, if, if they happen to be in a different club with different colors on, accept them uh, uh, for what they are. And if you don't like them, stay on your side of the gas pump. It's a big highway out there and there's lanes going each way. Mm. So there's room for everybody.
0: Mm. And and, and you know, George, there's still, and I heard it, I was listening to an interview you did, I think in February or March, there's still violence going on, man, uh, uh, club violence, club versus club violence, and it's like. Yes, a
1: couple of Mongols just got killed, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and I'm not even going to say who the suspects are, but it's, it's futile, and it's not productive, and it doesn't serve anything, it doesn't serve anyone. You're destroying not only your own life for taking somebody else's life. You're destroying everybody's life that touches that person that got hurt and the perpetrator as well. If, if they get caught in, uh, uh, you know, people can laugh at me. You know, I people towards the end of my tenure as a leader, they're going, you're getting soft. No, I'm not getting soft. I'm getting
0: wise. Right. I'm figuring it out. You got it. You got it. Well said, George. His name is George Christie. I am so honored and so happy. He's gave me an, almost an hour and a half of his time. George, thank you so much for being part of the show. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.